Good evening. Uh, another recording, this time really within the A21 comparative US-UK politics. So the focus in the revised uh, spec is very much on the US uh, political system, um, the legislature, Congress and the presidency. It used to focus a lot more on the Constitution and while that has been dropped as a standalone question, it's still very important to know of the relationship between, say, the President, Article 2 of the Constitution, Congress, Article 1, Supreme Court, Article 3, and then the first 10 amendments, Bill of Rights, and the remaining amendments, limited number, obviously, because of the difficulty in actually uh, passing a constitutional amendment. Uh, I mean, take, for instance, the 22nd Amendment, which restricts an American president to two terms. And uh, in the light of, obviously, Trump leaving office, some issues arise about the constitutionality of his, his current position. Actually, the Constitution is fairly quiet on, on things like the uh, inauguration and the transition. Uh, those have very much been worked out as perhaps a, a matter of um, convention rather than constitution. Okay, so um, this is a series of lectures on the President of the United States. The lecturer is Dr. John Herbert from Keele University. Keele is quite close to Stoke, uh, uh, not a place in the world you'd probably want to visit, but it's a, it's a fine university. Uh, but anyway, uh, John Herbert is going to look at the Office of the President of the United States, focusing particularly on the extent of the President's powers. Questions often would be on, comparative ones would obviously be contrasting, comparing the state to an extent to which the President or Prime Minister is more powerful, more influential, more effective as a legislator. Uh, legislator. Uh, etc. <coughs> and also the extent to which they're more effective within, say, for instance, their own administration. In broad, simple terms, normally the president is seen as much more powerful in terms of controlling his own executive cabinet, for instance, and what's called the executive office. Prime ministers are seen as more constrained by that. Um, and in the legislative side, it's often seen that prime ministers, who ultimately clearly have to get their legislation through, but their powers are, are much more significant there. Sometimes we talk about elective dictatorship, um, but it's much more seen in terms of government rather than simply prime minister. The president, it is uh, much more seen as uh, a situation where the president's success very much depends upon whether his uh, party controls uh, the Congress or what part it controls. Clearly coming up in the next day or two is the uh, runoff elections in Georgia. Um, Chances are that both will not go to the Democrats. It's, it's hard to say. It's, it's, it's a tricky one to call, particularly given the fact that Trump says the whole election process is now fraudulent and therefore it's hardly encouraging his base uh, to go out and vote uh, Republican. But we shall see uh, in the next couple of days. But if it was to go to both of the Democrats, then you'd have this bizarre thing in a system based on separation of powers of the Vice President Kamala Harris uh, actually as President of the Senate. Uh, having the casting vote so it would give arguably an, a, a greater potential for Biden's presidency to be able to get legislative, uh, gain legislative successes. So anyway, um, Herbert also then looks at uh, the thing between what are called the formal, you could say those based and entrenched in the constitution, and the informal powers of the presidency. And he relates these particularly to how this has expanded, uh, particularly the informal powers expanded in recent decades, particularly also after 9-11. Uh, we talked about George W. Bush uh, as the unitary president, uh, taking in, if you like, excessive powers or extra powers because of the security situation. Uh, then in the third module, module, he talks about the American political scientist Richard Neustadt's um, reference to the president's authority very much lying 
arguably only in the power to persuade and the various political institutions that comprise the separation of powers. And finally, he examines also another famous writer, Arthur Schlesinger, who was an advisor to democratic presidents in the 60s, but his reference to what were called the imperial presidency's thesis uh, is particularly applied to presidents like Nixon and then arguably revived under presidents like uh, Reagan. Uh, which argued that contrary to uh, Neustadt's model, the president was actually capable of bypassing the democratic checks and balance of the constitution and maintaining a direct hold in power. So we'll just go to the first of these lectures, which is about the president and the constitution. So uh, it lasts 11 minutes 10, uh, then the formal and informal powers 11 minutes 55. The big one is the leadership and the power to persuade, um, looking very much at Neustadt's ideas, 20 minutes and 38. And finally, referring to um, the, the views of uh, Arthur Schlesinger, bringing that up to date, executive power and the imperial presidency. So let's go with that one. Okay, the presidency and the constitution. John Herbert. I'm a senior lecturer in US politics at Keele University and I'm going to speak to you today about the US presidency. This is the first of four modules on the presidency um, where I'm going to focus largely on the nature of the US Constitution and how that set up the presidency. I'm going to talk a bit about the founding fathers vision of the presidency and how they expect this to be a weak office. I'm going to talk a lot about the formal powers of the presidency as well. Okay, so the starting point really is that we think of the president as an extraordinarily powerful person, but this was not the intent at all when the Founding Fathers sat down and wrote the Constitution. What they wanted to do was to create an insignificant office, a weak office. Now, there was plenty of contention at the Constitutional Convention over what this presidency should be, but the overall uh, assumption was that they would create an office that was not a hub of enormous power. All right? the, uh, the Founding Fathers had been part of a fighting force to get rid of the British, to overthrow the tyranny of King George. They didn't want to create a new monarchy in this new independent United States. They wanted an office which was constrained. And when you read the Constitution, it's infused with that fear of the presidency being too powerful. Uh, Edmund Randolph, who was uh, once governor of Virginia, said that, that he still feared, even after the convention where they tried to constrain the presidency, he feared that this presidency was the fetus of monarchy, which kind of speaks to this idea that they really worried about how powerful this office would be. And you can see in the Constitution how the presidency was developed in this constrained way. First of all, you'll note that it's not even the first article in the Constitution. The presidency is the second article behind Congress. And, of course, the principles of separation of powers and checks and balances uh, were both there to try and make sure that the presidency didn't become a dominant figure, that they wouldn't create a new king. So when you look at the Constitution, you find that actually the formal powers laid out in that Constitution are really quite limited. 
Um, it's best to go through them one by one to just bring out how each one works and then to think a little bit about how it's constrained and how these powers were compromised. So the first thing that the Constitution says is that the president is to be the chief executive. And the Constitution's really vague on what that actually means. It was kind of a, the executive power was given to the presidency, but it wasn't specified as to what this would be. Um, and the assumption was that the federal government, this central government for these new United States, would be small. So, in fact, it wasn't assumed that the executive power would be that significant. The presidency was given treaty-making powers, too, in the Constitution. But these treaty-making powers were compromised by the fact that anything the president went off and negotiated with other nations would then have to be ratified by the Senate within Congress. So, in fact, the president didn't have the power to go and make foreign policy. They could simply negotiate treaties that Senate, the Senate would then sign off on. This was very much a compromised power. Um, the presidency was made commander-in-chief, which sounds an extraordinary power and indeed subsequently becomes very important. But in fact, at the time, making the president commander-in-chief was not seen as a grant of extraordinary power either. Um, the idea was that this new United States would reject the ways of the old world and not be involved in having a foreign policy. It would sit a safe distance away from Europe. So to be commander-in-chief was not to lead a standing army or to oversee nu nuclear weapons or anything that we think of today, but actually was about the fact that if the United States was to be invaded by a foreign power, someone would need to be commanding the military forces, which would have to be mustered. Those from that military would have to be created by bringing uh, together um, the militias from various states and they would need one commander. So the commander-in-chief power was not as significant as we would see it today. The presidency is given the veto. Now, the veto power is a formal power. It's detailed in the Constitution. The idea here was one of checks and balances. Congress was given the power to write the laws, so actually to decide what the law of the land was, would be, but the president was given the constraint on them of being able to veto anything they did. Effectively, a president needs to sign legislation for it to become the law of the land. So the president was given this power to constrain Congress. But even then, the founding fathers feared that presidents would have too much power, so they wouldn't even give the president an unqualified veto. What they did was set up a system where Congress would pass the legislation. The president could veto it, but then Congress, if it really wanted to do something, two-thirds majorities required in both the House of Representatives and the Senate, then they could override the president's veto. So it was even giving the president a veto in the Constitution was a qualified veto. There was a limitation there. Uh, the president's given the power to make executive appointments in the Constitution. That's another formal power. But the problem with the executive appointments power is the president who is, after all, appointing the people to head the federal departments he's supposed to oversee, that he's supposed to be leading, 
He's only given the power to nominate people to most of those positions. Senate, within Congress, retains the right to confirm those appointments. So a nomination is made by the president, but if the Senate turns around and says no, then the president can't actually employ who they want to to head the federal departments they're supposed to oversee. So again, you've got checks and balances in play here and you've got the presidency constrained even in terms of get, trying to get on with the business of implementing federal laws they're constrained by congress there are reprieves and pardons um, which are a limited formal power uh, a few presidents have used these uh, in a sort of coordinated way to employ as a policy tool so for example towards the end of his second term president obama used this to deal with certain kinds of drug offenses he used this, this systematically to try and deal with the uh, widely perceived as unjust sentencing of uh, some drug offenders. But largely, this is a minor, uh, limited power. So, in fact, when you stack up the formal powers in the Constitution as given by the Founding Fathers, the presidency is basically quite a weak and constrained institution. That's not coincidence. That was a matter of intent. Even the name, the president was supposed to represent the idea that this office was not all-powerful. To preside over a meeting is merely to chair it, to see it, see it running. So that even the term president was supposed to be marking out the idea that this office was not incredibly powerful. Now, that means that when one thinks about the presidency within the US political system, a lot of the real power... The ability to get the federal government to do things lies elsewhere. So you're talking about, for example, the power to write the laws, legislation, that lying with Congress. The budgetary power, the capacity to actually spend money, that lies with Congress. There's the judicial power, the power to interpret the laws through Supreme Court's power of judicial review, lies with the Supreme Court, not with the presidency. That's what the Constitution sets up. And then, of course, there are many other players in the political system that aren't necessarily covered in the Constitution. Interest groups, the media, political parties, and, of course, the, the states within a federal system of government. All of these are other players. So when you think of the American political system and the presidency's position within it, the classic way to interpret it is to say, look at all these different centres of power around the Washington system. Those don't lie with the presidency. The president is not in a position to issue commands and to expect the rest of the system to jump. So when you start thinking about the office, that's kind of your key starting point. The presidency is simply given this limited role, this executive role of implementing the laws. Uh, people could refer to it as a kind of clerkship, an administrative role, to be chief clerk. And the early conduct of the office really reinforces this pattern. George Washington is very careful about how little he asserts the power of the presidency because he believes in a lesser, weaker presidency. And it's represent, this sort of weakness is represented in a number of forms. You start talking about the size of the institution. The White House as such 
barely existed as an institution. Washington employed a nephew from his own pocket. That was his White House staff. Even when we get through to 1922, so actually we're only talking about a century ago, we're simply talking about a staff of about 31 people, most of whom are clerks and administrators, very low-level figures. And when we start talking about who was in the job, we talk about people who didn't necessarily leave a deep mark on history. You won't be discussing a lot of Millard Fillmore's achievements when you start thinking about the US presidency. Um, there are exceptions, of course, and we need to talk about those a little bit. But this was how the system was designed. And the Constitution is a crucial starting point in understanding the aim to create a small, marginal institution of the presidency with all these dispersed powers across the Washington system. It's not a command position, and it was never intended to be. Hello. In this second module, I'm going to talk a little bit about how the formal powers of the presidency have grown in certain cases, and I'm going to talk about the informal powers of the presidency. So it's important to make that differentiation really clear. The Constitution issues certain powers direct to the presidency. They're there, you can read them. Then there are a series of informal powers that have come about, partly because of the way the Constitution was written. You won't find these powers actually written in the Constitution, but you will be able to see how the way it's written sets them up, and partly through practice, basically how the US political system has run over the last few years has given the presidency extra power. So I'm going to take you through a series of formal powers, then informal powers. So formal powers, I said in the previous module, have been constrained a lot by the way the Constitution was written. But in some cases, the presidency is kind of broken out, if you like, of those constraints and has gained more influence by using some of the formal powers and expanding their meaning and their application. So the most obvious example of this is the commander-in-chief power. It's one little phrase there in the Constitution. And as I said in the previous module, the idea was that the president would command the force, defensive forces against an invasion. That was kind of the, the basic idea here for a country that would have virtually no foreign policy. Over time, of course, that's radically changed. And when we now think of the power of the presidency and think of it as a powerful institution, part of that is about the change in America's role in the world, which really took off after the Cold War and the decision to resist the Russians, the Soviet, then Soviet Union, um, and has continued as the US has played such a significant um, role in world politics. So the commander-in-chief power, which was originally very much constrained, is now an empowerment where presidents have said, OK, I am the commander of this nation's standing military forces. I have my finger on the nuclear button. I can organise bombings of other countries at the drop of a hat. And I, as president, will take that leadership role. I will be responsible for the nation's national security. And that decision and 
largely Congress's tolerance of it, has given the president enormous influence over foreign policy. So that one little phrase has been transformed into a series of practices where um, President Obama was able to um, commit military forces to Libya, for example, in the overthrow of Muammar Gaddafi, um, where Donald Trump has launched a, a bombing of Syria, um, where President George W. Bush was willing to hold American citizens accused of terrorist offences without actually charging them of, with a crime. Um, that national security rhetoric under the president's responsibilities as commander-in-chief, as the president claims it, has been a really significant addition to presidential power. And there are other examples of these formal powers being um, very significant in ways that the Founding Fathers hadn't intended. So another obvious example is the veto power. Now, you'll remember from the previous module that the veto power was the idea that if Congress passed legislation, the president could veto it. That could be overridden if Congress really wanted to um, back a piece of legislation. But the veto is incredibly important because of the way presidents have used it. So the way this works is that Congress is writing a law. They're putting a lot of work into dealing with constituents, interests and so on to put a piece of legislation together. But they all know in the background, that if this is actually to become the law of the land, if this is their, their efforts are all going to be worthwhile, they're going to need the president's signature on that bill. That's the only way they can get this thing done. That means they fear the president's ability to veto, and the president knows that, and the presidency can threaten to veto. The presidency can begin to shape the bargaining process going on in Congress by saying... No, I don't fancy what you're preparing there. Don't like that. You're going to have to change it this way or I won't sign it. And you get that first sense of how the checks and balances and the separation of powers both play out here in the relationship between President and Congress here. Because what you get is the Congress watching warily, trying to work out whether the president is going to veto the piece of legislation, and you get the president trying to calculate whether that veto, if they use it, is actually overridable by Congress. Will Congress get its act together to override a veto? So that exchange and that bargaining process develops that is crucial to understanding presidential congressional relations. So the Congress may pass the bill, the president may choose to sign it or veto it, and then in turn, if it has been vetoed, Congress can decide whether to override it or not. The key thing is it gives the president a seat at the bargaining table. It means the president's staff are sent into those meetings with the legislators to say, this is what the president wants, this is how you should change your proposal, this is what you should be writing into the law. So the veto is really important, and if you just look at the language, you miss the underlying power dynamics going on. So that's another example of how formal powers have developed in really interesting ways that have empowered the presidency. OK, so you can look at formal powers and how they're used and the kind of politics that grows up around them. You can also look at informal powers. And there are many scholars who argue that the informal powers are just as or even more important than the formal powers. Now, a lot of this starts with the fact that the Constitution is written in a way that sets up the single executive, one person as president. 
Right? That wasn't a given when the Constitutional Convention met. They talked about a committee of 13 people to preside, for example. But what they do is they create one office for one person, a vice presidency, and then they make those elected by the whole nation. All right, so it's not just the single executive, it's that they become, president and vice president, the only people who can genuinely claim to have a national mandate, that they are officers of the federal government elected by the whole country. Now, a lot of the informal powers that presidents have come from that status as the single nationally elected figure that possession of arguably a mandate to lead. So when you look at the other informal powers, thinking, think of them in that context and think of how that relationship works with the public as well, the public looking to this single figure as their leader. Um, some brilliant survey work done way back in the 1970s where... Um, political scientists worked out that people identify with the president when they're very young. They did uh, some really interesting survey work with kids of sort of six, seven, eight, nine. A guy called Fred Greenstein did this stuff and found out that even kids of that age were looking at the presidency and equating them with the government and with responsibility. So you get um, the idea that kids think, oh, the president's job is to give daddy a job. Um, the president's job is to help ducks and so on. So you get a sense, even at that age, the presidency is a presence in young people's minds and, and a sense that they have some kind of national identity that people relate to and look to for leadership. So that profile as a single leader is really important. And obviously the, one of the most important ways this comes out is in terms of the president's ability to communicate with the public as this uh, representative of the governmental system. Now, there are various terms used for this. Um, Theodore Roosevelt, who was a, a president at the turn of the around the turn of the last century, referred to this as the bully pulpit. The idea that the president was like um, a religious figure on a Sunday, holding forth to people about uh, how they should think and how they should act. It was this idea that he had this incredible vantage point to speak to people. When he said bully pulpit, he didn't mean in terms of bullying. He meant bully as in bully for you, good for you, good for me, because I'm president and I can do this stuff. Um, so the idea is the president has this uh, communicator-in-chief role. It's not formally defined as such. Some scholars have used this term. This idea of being able to go and speak to the people. That's partly about the rise of the electronic media with radio, then television, then the internet. There was an idea of focusing on federal government in terms of needing relatable figures. So the president was the leader. They were the natural person to go to. Uh, that was part of this. And, of course, presidents were willing to use this tool. And we've seen a sequence of presidents using these tools right through to Trump in the present day, making use of social media, particularly Twitter, um, to try and communicate with people. So that comes out of the single executive, this single leader per, um, who is uh, looked to by the public in these terms. Now, we're not entirely sure how powerful this is as a role. Um, it's notable that some scholars have said presidents can go public, they can sell their agenda and persuade people what to believe in and what to, what to think. 
most people don't buy that kind of idea that the president has a hypodermic needle that they can put into the body politic and just inject ideas. Most scholars are really sceptical of this one. But there is a suggestion that the president has power over the political agenda. They're in a position to go and convince people to think about certain issues. So Trump has done a brilliant job of drawing attention to the issue of immigration, for example, through his use of Twitter. Although there's a lot of evidence to question that, but I'll come back to in a later module. But you can see examples of presidents speaking to the public, Obama speaking about health care, for example, to try and get people engaged with the issues and to support his positions and his legislation. Equally, the role of party leader, which isn't stated in the Constitution, but comes about because the president is nominated by the party to run for the presidency first. That's a significant grant of power that's informal. The president deals with Congress quite often on the basis of a shared party label. So Trump as a Republican deals closely with the Republican Party. Um, so you have this uh, series of informal powers that presidents can use um, to try and influence other players in the political system, which is something I'll need to talk about more in the next module. In this module, I'm going to talk about the nature of presidential leadership, or at least one concept of how presidential leadership works. So in previous sections, I've talked a bit about how the Constitution sets up lots of different players in the political system with a range of powers. So the presidency is not a command office where the president simply gives out orders, but the president has to reach out to other players. I want to talk about that a little more. Um, if the president wants to get anything done, if they want to pass legislation, if they want to get federal money spent on any kind of project, um, even sometimes when they want to launch military action, they're going to need support of other players. And that conception of the presidency is something that needs a little bit of filling out, a little bit of thought, because there are all these other players the person who really pinned this down was a guy called Richard Neustadt. Now, he was writing quite some time ago. He'd worked in the Truman administration, um, and um, he was an advisor to um, President Kennedy during his transition. So he was he's quite some time back. The book with Presidential Power was published in 1960. Um, but Neustadt really captured an understanding of the office that is really important today. Right. His basic challenge, having worked um, it with Democrats during World War II, was to explain why Franklin Roosevelt had proved such a great president and Dwight Eisenhower seemed to be proving such an ineffectual president, even though they held the same office and the same powers. And Neustadt's explanation of this has been influential right through to the present day. What he said was basically that presidents were given a position from which they could lead. Not given the power to lead, but given a position, a vantage point in the political system from which they could lead. They had all these other players with all their powers scattered around them. And if the president was to try to lead, they would have to try and persuade those other players in the system to adopt the president's agenda. 
So rather than thinking of the president as a desk giving orders and using formal powers written in the Constitution, you should think of presidential leadership as an attempt to get other political players to come on board to support the president's agenda, to take their little bits of power and bring them together behind the president's chosen agenda. And the phrase, the power to persuade, is the one that people really latched onto and really thought Neustadt's captured something different about the way the presidency works. Now, initially, a lot of the response to this focused on the president's interactions with Congress and then widened out to think about the president's interaction with other players. So the president's ability to persuade not just Congress, but to influence the operation of the court system, to influence the public, to influence media, interest groups, party leaders, etc. So the idea became that, OK, we have this master string puller at the centre of the system. And what decides whether someone is an effective president or not is their personal skills. That was where the scholarship went first. Newstat's model seemed to imply that a lot of the capacity to lead was down to, say, Lyndon Johnson's capacity to influence Congress um, or the rhetorical skill of Ronald Reagan in talking to the American public. You look at a kind of skill set that's about knowledge, information, expertise, persuasion, charm, charisma. A lot of the scholarship really focused on what was loosely called presidential character or presidential psychology. Now, what we've done since then is accepted that this is a good way of thinking about presidents' attempts to lead. They don't have all the power to actually make things happen. But we don't think that it's simply a question of presidential character that allows people to lead. So what I'm going to talk about is how the president's capacity to lead within the political system is influenced by other considerations that are important. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the relationship with President Congress, a little bit about the relationship with President Courts, and then, uh, but along the way, I'm going to cover a lot of the things that might make a difference to the president's ability to lead that aren't about uh, whether Trump is an expert on a particular policy area or whether he's a great rhetorician or anything like that. So thinking about presidency and Congress first, the president goes to Congress to get them to write laws in a particular way or to get them to um, spend money on a particular project or to get them to approve appointments or to get them to not interfere in the president's implementation of policies, for example. The Congress has a power of oversight that means they can try and interfere in the implementation of the laws. So what the president wants to do is try and persuade them and to use their power to do his bidding. So largely this is about bargaining, about using a series of techniques where you maybe trade off political favours. Uh, you might, for instance, offer to go and appear with the legislator at one of their campaign stops to give them additional credibility. You might try and make sure that they're not going to have political opponents. You might try and help raise them campaign funding. You might help them with another project that they're interested in, in terms of getting uh, their own laws passed and 
promising your support, throwing your weight behind it will help. All kinds of ways you can bargain with Congress. But what actually makes a difference to the president's capacity to get results out of Congress? Well, as political scientists um, over the last few decades, we've identified a series of things that we think are really important. Um, the most obvious thing is who's actually in Congress. All right. Congress is elected separate, in a separate set of elections from president. They might run at the same time on some occasions, but they're a separate set of elections. That means you've got a bunch of people who are not necessarily beholden to the president who's just been elected. They've run their own campaigns. They've raised their own campaign funds. They've built their own organizations. But the party label, increasingly the party label matters. All right. We used to talk about this in terms of the parties being uh, really disparate ideologically, each legislator being their own little world, their own little individual operation. That's partly true, but party label is becoming more and more important. So it really matters to the president which party is best represented in Congress. Um, so in... Um, uh, the time when uh, Donald Trump had just been elected, having won the 2016 election, he was in an advantageous position because he had unified government. He confronted a Senate and a House of Representatives, both led by Republican Party majorities. He, as a Republican, was talking to people of his own party. And we know that really empowers a president. But it's not actually guaranteed that that is what a president will confront. So after the 2018 midterms, the Democrats were the majority party. They became the majority party in the uh, House of Representatives. So Trump confronted a House of Representatives of the opposite party. If he wanted to pass legislation, he had to get that through both the Republican-led Senate and the Democrat-led House of Representatives. That's a difficult challenge. We call it divided government. Quick aside here, always be careful to differentiate between the separation of powers and separated government, which is about the way the Constitution creates different powers and different responsibilities, and divided government. Divided government is about the idea that different parties control can control the presidency and different parts of Congress. So you get that, that difference between separated and divided. It's really important to try and remember that one. Okay, so presidents sometimes confront divided government where the other party, whose interests really do not lie with the president, have the power to block the president's legislation. We end up with long periods of largely gridlock where you can't get much activity out of, out of Congress. The president can try to lead, but he faces um, cross-party opposition. That can be a really difficult situation for a president to try to lead. Ideally, they want their own party in control. But as the Trump example proves, even having unified government, Republicans in charge of the House of Representatives and the Senate and the presidency is not necessarily enough to guarantee that a president can lead. The party does not always follow where the president leads. So, for example, 
Donald Trump attempts to reform health care when he first comes into office. He has unified government. He has himself a Republican Senate and a Republican House of Representatives. But he can't actually get those Republicans to agree on a reform to repeal Obama's health care reform, which is what he wanted to achieve. There is all kinds of infighting and drama, uh, particularly when uh, Senator John McCain delivers the casting vote in the Senate that basically condemns Trump's attempts to achieve reform to failure. Uh, So what you get is presidents knowing that they have an advantage if they're trying um, to uh, lead in conditions of unified government, but it's not a guarantee. The party does not always follow. What we have seen over the last few years is that parties follow uh, more and more They're much more willing to follow a president than in previous years, but it's still not absolute. And Trump's a great example of this problem. Uh, He struggled with his own right-wingers as well as some of his own moderates, uh, the so-called Freedom Caucus, uh, which is a group of right-wing legislators who were very unhappy that Trump wasn't pushing the repeal of Obamacare hard enough and wasn't coming up with a conservative enough reform. And they were really awkward customers when he was trying to win over their support. And you get the bargaining process that I talked about in a previous module playing out um, as they try and threaten him with uh, withdrawing their support and he gets very very cross with them very upset with them and let's face it Trump's good at expressing his upset Um, and you watch this within party dynamic falling apart and eventually leading to a really significant defeat for Trump. So unified government is no kind of guarantee and it's really important how presidents try to approach Congress to get reforms from them. They've really got to think about this strategically and carefully. That's actually proved to be one of Trump's weaknesses. Now, there are other things that make a difference, therefore, um, to a president's ability to lead Congress. It's not just about party, but in that example, it was about the ideology. It wasn't the party was in a majority, but it didn't hang together ideologically, and that limited the president's capacity to lead. Traditionally, Democrats have had this problem too. So when Obama tried to pass health care in 2008, 9 and 10, he had the same problem, only it was the moderate centrist Democrats he was struggling to get on board without alienating the left. So most presidents have to navigate this difficult ideological terrain. Now, another consideration as to whether presidents have a good chance to lead Congress and lead the political system as a whole, in fact, is public opinion. Is the president actually popular? That's something that's really contentious in the scholarship in the field. Um, So um, a lot of people assumed for a long time that a popular president would be more influential over Congress. The evidence on this one, though, is really, really mixed. So, yes, lots of people might approve of the president, but that doesn't mean Congress is simply going to do their bidding because of that public approval. Um, George H.W. Bush was enormously popular after the um, uh, first Gulf War um, back in the 1980s, but he couldn't get much change out of a Democratic Congress. Um, And what this speaks to is that a lot of the legislators have their own considerations far apart from how popular the president is. 
Um, so public approval doesn't make a massive difference to a president's ability to lead if they're popular. What we do know, though, is that presidents really struggle to lead Congress if they're unpopular because their own party drifts away from them as they become a political liability. So it's easier to oppose the president. So it's not that high ratings definitely lead to a capacity to lead or a power to lead because you've got new legitimacy. But we do know that having really poor approval ratings lessens your ability to lead Congress. Another thing that makes a difference, of course, is the policy area you're trying to lead in. So certain parties are associated more with being in the public mind, with being able to deliver particular policy areas in a concept called issue ownership. And Congress is more or less supportive of the president on certain policy areas over others. The first person to really get into this was a guy called Aaron Wildavsky, who came up with something called the two presidencies thesis, where he said, OK, in foreign policy... Presidents are given more leeway to lead in domestic policy, healthcare, economy, welfare, etc. Not so much. Presidents don't have the same capacity to lead. Now, that was a study done during the Cold War, and the effect seems to have diminished. But there's still a dynamic here where presidents are more able to lead in some areas than others. And there's been a lot of interesting work done on this, some of which suggests that it's actually the complexity of the policy area that matters. If it's really complex, the president has more opportunity to influence people's thinking. Uh, if it's salient, it's something that's really in the public eye, the president might have more capacity to influence the public's thinking and therefore more ability to influence um, Congress. But when you're thinking about analysing any individual set of events, think about the nature of the policy area as well as just thinking generally about presidential leadership. Another thing that influences um, the president's capacity to lead Congress is simply events. Major events happen and sometimes they'll focus the agenda so that everyone is looking at one particular issue at one particular time. The classic example is the attacks of September the 11th in 2001, but you have other examples such as the economic crisis of 2008 going into 2009. That's a particularly interesting one because George W. Bush was president when that first broke, and he was seen as a really weak president. Poor approval ratings, uh, a very much damaged reputation because of two wars that were going wrong in Iraq and Afghanistan and growing economic problems. But when it came to the actual economic crash where companies were going under and the banking system was under threat, he was able to come up with a proposal for massive spending, quite the opposite to what you would expect a Republican to advocate, but he's able to get that through because the sense of economic crisis is so great that people are willing to go with the president's plan. He gets major reform through just before he leaves office when you'd expect a president to be really struggling for influence. And indeed, Obama gets elected, comes in straight after him and gets another set of reforms through on the basis of the economic crisis. What's happening there? There are a number of things going on. People look to the presidency for leadership. There are some really interesting studies saying that people think that presidents are more charismatic simply because there's a crisis going on. George W. Bush suddenly became charismatic. It's an interesting concept. Um, so what you get is 
people's attitudes, the public focus on this single elected executive for leadership, and Congress looks to the presidency because it can act quickly. It's, Congress is a large, unwieldy institution. It finds it hard to get its plans together. The president comes in and says, this is a crisis, we have to do this. And quite often, Congress is deferential under those circumstances. So events, and particularly crises, can make a real difference to the president's capacity to lead. Now, you can do the same kind of analysis looking at the president's ability to influence the courts. That is something which I'm not going to do at great length here, but do bear in mind that presidents try to influence the way the courts work to fit with their ideology. They have a power to nominate judges to the lower courts and justices to the Supreme Court. And although the Senate has to sign off, confirm those nominations, um, they can try and influence the way the court acts to interpret legislation. Um, so um, when you think about the Supreme Court, you'll get into the idea that there are quite often seen to be liberal and conservative justices. And a president will try to get people onto the courts who reflect their ideological views to influence the way the courts will behave. There are other things presidents can do as well that might have influence. So, for example, um, they will publicly shame the court, they'll make statements about how they think a decision shouldn't have been taken or a particular decision should be taken um, to try and pressure the courts using that bully pulpit to uh, influence the public to influence the courts. Um, they will try to um, ask US attorneys, so federal government officers, to, to uh, pursue particular cases uh, or indeed ignore certain cases to try and make sure certain things get attention in the court system and certain things are ignored. So there are a series of tools there. So just as the president tries to influence Congress, the president will try to influence the courts as well. OK, so what I hope I've done in that module is take you through the sense that the president is seen by Neustadt as this master string puller, this person trying to coordinate all these other political power centres in Washington and beyond to try and line them up behind the president's agenda. It's a perpetual strategic challenge for the president to pursue this. Uh, it's, it's enormously demanding. It demands real strategic thought. And you watch presidents struggle with this challenge time and time again because it's not necessarily the case that just their skill set will be able to sort this out. Sometimes the system is so aligned that it's impossible to achieve things. So a lot of the skill of presidential leadership is about choosing what is possible, what changes that there are there that you can facilitate and what things might be impossible. All of that said... There's one more part of this uh, uh, that I need to talk about, one more module, which is about executive power, which sharply contradicts Newstat's model. So it's worth seeing all that I've said here in the light of what I'm going to say in the next module. This fourth module is about executive power and the imperial presidency. Now, a lot of the material in the previous three modules has based, was based on a real assumption about how the presidency and indeed the US political system works. So the suggestion was there are all these multiple centres of power and the president's job is to try and somehow miraculously get all these players to align behind their agenda to make things happen. That was the basic contention of Richard Neustadt's work and a lot of the work that followed from it. 
But you do need to ask yourself, and there's a lot of scholarship that has asked this question over the last few years, is that fundamentally wrong? Can the president act alone? Do they have executive power which can override the actions of all these other power centres? Now, this first came to prominence with the concept of the imperial presidency uh, from Arthur Schlesinger's book looking at uh, the uh, Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon's presidencies. Um, but it got a great deal of attention with the start of the war on terror and George W. Bush's assertions and at the same time, a um, series of works looking at presidential executive power. So we are in a period where we're asking ourselves whether there's now a new imperial presidency. Now, this starts right back with the Constitution. Um, when we talk about the Constitution outlining the president's executive power, that was really vague. Right, that phrase in the Constitution seems to not amount to very much, and the label that the president will be the chief executive doesn't amount to very much. But that limited formal power, that unspecified formal power, has clearly ballooned into something far more significant. Um, it seemed to reinforce the impression that it's a weak office, but we now see that a whole series of things happened going right back to the 1930s and 1950s which empowered um, the presidency and made this executive power far more substantial. So when the founders wrote the constitution they didn't expect the federal government to be a big operation but over the last century there was a transformation in the responsibilities of the federal government. With the onset of the Great Depression the federal government took much more responsibility for the economy Economy. With the onset of the Second World War and the Cold War, the um, federal government took on much more responsibility for uh, uh, an expansive foreign policy. And in the 1950s, during the um, post-war uh, demilitarization. You had a period where there were efforts to introduce new policies uh, over around welfare, social security. Those go back to the 30s and uh, forward to the 60s. There's a period where the federal government vastly expands its responsibilities. Now, what it does is set up a whole series of bureaucracies. Congress can't run all this stuff. They can't be administering the programmes that the federal government's creating. So you end up with them creating big bureaucracies and delegating an awful lot of power to those bureaucracies. So far, far, suddenly, the chief executive who is going to be overseeing this small organisation, the federal government, the president, the chief executive, now has an enormous executive to be chief of. It fundamentally changes the nature of the presidency because suddenly their role of overseeing the implementation of the law, this executive role, becomes a massive responsibility overseeing a federal bureaucracy, depends how you count it, but of up to four million people. So actually the nature of the presidency changes quite radically and one of the really important power centres are the bureaucracy who are out there actually doing the federal government's business. And the argument goes, if you're going to believe in this as a real source of presidential power, that the president tries to bypass all the other powerful players in the political system and just give orders straight to that bureaucracy to tell them to implement laws in the ways they want to on the basis of their concerns, priorities and ideology. 
if you actually buy this as a way of understanding the US political system, then you are saying that you have an incredibly powerful presidency. Because what you're saying is that, yes, there are laws, but the president gets to implement them and to interpret them and to tell people how to implement them. They run the government. And that, it could be conceived as a real threat to American democracy. So when you hear assertions in the media about the power of the US presidency and whether the president is abusing their powers, a lot of this comes down to whether the president is trying to bypass the rest of the political system to get the bureaucracy to implement laws in ways that maybe don't even fit with how the law was written or even the wording of the law. So... You've got this massive expansion of government, these new capacities that come to the presidency. And certain things happen alongside that that really reinforce this growth. Firstly, the presidency is recognised by Congress as needing help to actually organise all its operations. So what's created is an executive office of the president. Some of the literature will call that the EOP, some will call it EXOP, EXOP. But that executive office of the president is a group of staff who work directly for the president. Many of them don't need to be confirmed by Senate. A few do, but most of them don't. And you end up with a series of offices that can help the president plan policy, um, publicise particular messages, um, uh, can oversee an awful lot of the national security operations that are involved. Uh, can bring together policymakers in various other parts of the federal government to get them to coordinate their action. That EXOP, Executive Office of the President, is a real source of power because it's a flow of information and expertise uh, and it allows the president to reach down into the operations of the bigger federal government, the broad executive branch, and try and influence how they operate and how they're implementing the law. So firstly, there's the arrival of this new office, which grows from Franklin Roosevelt's time under, under Nixon. It has about 5,000 people working there. It's now back down to a sort of more reasonable 1,800 or so people. Um, but you have a group of people whose work is dedicatedly for the president. This is a long way from George Washington and his nephew mm -hmm. being the White House. Um, so you have this bunch of people working which allow the president to exploit executive power, allow him to take a series of actions. This staff magnifies their influence by providing time, energy, expertise that the president couldn't do. It means the president can do much more than they'd be able to do on their own. Now, alongside this, presidents have developed a series of tools to try and influence the bureaucracy. So the most prominent of these are what are called executive orders. These are documents that are signed by the president, each one individually numbered and published as part of the Federal Register. So they're official documents and they're sent out to the bureaucracy to order the bureaucracy to behave in particular ways. Some of them are really low-key and virtually irrelevant, you know, declaring a half day off for federal workers um, around Christmas, some, that sort of thing, very low-key. Some of these are really significant documents. So one of the first things a president does when they come into office is issue a series of high-profile executive orders that give attention to the issues that they want to act on. So um, when Donald Trump came 
came into office, one of the first things he did was issue an executive order intended to implement the so-called Muslim ban to constrain immigration from certain uh, uh, Muslim-majority nations across the world. So that was an executive order sent out to say, this is how immigration services and customs services should be handling people entering the United States. So these things can be really influential and really powerful. There are a series of similar tools, uh, like executive orders that presidents use, such as presidential memoranda, which became very prevalent during the uh, Bush and then Obama administration. Um, you can have... Uh, presidential directives, proclamations, interpretations of congressional intent, con sorry, congressional intent, the so-called signing statements, which reinterpret laws that have just been passed. There's a whole series of executive tools here that presidents use, basically sending documents out that act in the short term as having the force of law. All right. Now, they can be legally challenged and they can be, as happened with Trump's um, ban on immigration from particular ent entry to the US from particular Muslim nations. They can be challenged in the courts, but in the short term, they have the force of law, which suggests the president can just issue these orders, do the dramatic signature on the piece of paper, send it out, get the government to behave differently. Now, that combined with the um, growth of the institution of the executive office of the president and this great executive power adds up to a concept called the imperial presidency. The suggestion that the power that the presidency has become a command institution, that the presidency can simply give those orders from their desk in the Oval Office and the American government will respond. It's an extraordinary opportunity to lead. Uh, Schlesinger wrote about this as saying that the media and Congress had failed in their responsibilities to co constrain the president and, in fact, that the basic constitutional order in the United States had broken down. It's a pretty dramatic argument saying effectively that American democracy has been, um, if not absolutely killed, at least um, circumvented by presidential innovation. Now, that is not the whole story. So I'm just going to wrap up by saying there are limits to this executive power, just as all the other presidential powers are limited. The other players in the political system can respond if an executive order is issued, the president, the president may get his way in the short term, but Congress can write a new law. They can reclaim that power if they want to. A lot of this is done by delegation. There can be challenges to these actions in the courts, so you get a whole series of legal exchanges over each of these contentious acts. Uh, when there's political controversy, there'll be a series of legal cases, and we'll see them prog the cases progress through the court system, potentially right up to the Supreme Court, who will decide what is legal and what's not, um, and what the law was intended to say and what not. So what you get is a dynamic of presidents trying to work out how far they can push their executive power without triggering a response from the rest of the political system, a resistance which might lead to the president being unpopular or might indeed lead to the rest of the political system turning around and saying no to the president's exertion of executive power. Don't think of this as a breakdown in the US political system. All right. This is not the presidency now untrammeled and the destruction of the system of checks and balances. 
What you do have is a presidency with more powers because of the great bureaucracy they now command and the tools they can use to try and influence it. They are more powerful, but the same battle can follow from these kind of presidential actions. They try and assert their boundary, their power, they try to push back at the constitutional boundaries, but the courts and the Congress can step up. It's really a question of political will as to whether they decide to undertake opposing a president. So, for example, um, the president might do something that's deeply unpopular and therefore it will be in the interests of legislators potentially to make political gain by opposing that action. On other occasions, Congress will sit there and go, that executive order suits us down to the ground. It saved us the effort of having to pass legislation. We're glad the policy is being implemented in that way. The other thing to note is that when these executive actions are taken, they only last until a president decides to overturn them. So when Obama left office and Trump came into office, a whole series of Obama's executive actions were overturned very quickly by the incoming Trump administration. So these actions are extremely influential at the time that they are taken, but they're not necessarily long term. And you watch legislation, uh, you watch executive action taken, and you, then a president come in and reverse those as, as a matter of course now. It's become a part of the ritual of a new president coming in. So when people talk about a new imperial presidency, as uh, Andy Radulovich does, picking up the Schlesinger idea, um, take it with a pinch of salt. This is still an ongoing political contest. The president is now equipped with a series of new advantages by which they can take this first mover action and influence the way the system runs. But it's not the collapse of American democracy uh, that some would have you believe. Where it gets interesting is where people don't have the political will to oppose the presidency. So perhaps under conditions of unified government where Congress will stop scrutinising and stop opposing, there you get to the point where maybe you've got real concerns for the fate of American democracy. So what I've done in that module is, I hope, given you a sense that there's another way of looking at the system, not the new stat way of thinking about it as all uh, separate power centres, that the imperial presidency really challenges that view, that way of thinking about the presidency. But actually, when you look at this play out, the presidency is more powerful because of this, this expanded executive power. But that doesn't mean that the American political system has collapsed. Okay, that uh, concludes those uh, series of lectures. I think excellent lectures by John Herbert. Very clearly explained and illustrated uh, all the way through from the constitutional position to the formal and informal powers. And then the two big sort of areas of argument uh, when you look at the power of the president, uh, this uh, Neustadt argument, um, separated institutions sharing power was another phrase that he used. Um, and while these can be contextualized in the period in which they were writing, uh, as with, say, Schlesinger in the, the notion of the imperial presidency, at least the first of the, the academics and, and indeed insiders to sort of propound this view, that was put across, uh, obviously reflecting on Johnson, uh, got into Vietnam, Nixon, obviously a, a president who had a degree of sort of dodginess about him as well and, and tried to sort of use executive power. 
uh, often because he faced um, political opponents in Congress. In that sense, he wasn't, for a period of time, his presidency not that strong. And clearly, uh, for the latter part of his presidency, under the cloud of the Watergate investigation. Um, I think that's a pretty clear uh, consideration of it. I uh, hope you find it very useful. Uh, bear in mind also, for instance, the, the executive order that um, Trump brought in leaving the Paris climate uh, change uh, sort of treaties, and the Paris treaties as they're called. And notice that Biden coming in will uh, essentially re- rejoin or return um, uh, the, the US to that. Equally, uh, moving from the World Health Organization, Biden again will reverse that decision. Now, uh, it's, it's unlikely that those actually will be significantly challenged. Um, probably they're, they're ones that will go through, but there, there's still opportunities. As I said, very much depends uh, for good or ill. Uh, whether the Congress is unified behind a, a president in the White House. Presidents, of course, are supposed to get this notion of a, a honeymoon period. Um, they talk about the, the first hundred days. Clearly, one of the big things on Biden's plate I will be to test his leadership because it is a crisis and an increasing crisis, and that is uh, the management of COVID. Uh, on his side, uh, undoubtedly, um, there is the, the emergence of the vaccines. Um, Pfizer and Moderna, particularly, have been effectively with rule out in the United States of America, that that may um, play a part in possibly even uniting the country and reconciling themselves behind Biden. But don't think that uh, he's going to have such an easy time. Uh, There's a very toxic political situation in the United States of America. There's 75 million people voting for, for Trump and a significant number of those and indeed a significant number of legislators uh, doubting the the, uh, the election and believing um, right-wing conservative uh, news sites that this election in some way or other was fraudulent and stolen. Um, to look out also for particularly what happens in the Senate, um, key institution, particularly in foreign policy actually, and also in the appointments process. You saw how very anxious Trump was to get uh, another justice on the Supreme Court, particularly a justice re- replacing a liberal justice, Ruth Bader Ginsburg had died, and replacing her with another female, that's almost a guarantee now, female for female, and there are three uh, females on the court. Uh, historically, that's been a pretty new thing, when he first emerged with Sandra Day O'Connor under Reagan. But uh, the change to Amy uh, uh, Coney Barrett, uh, clearly uh, fairly presumed to be anyway, a fairly conservative jurist, is, is going to make some difference there on, on decisions potentially like things like Obamacare uh, down the line as constitutionality and um, also Roe v. Wade. Of course, the court themselves are a reactive institution. It depends on cases coming to them. They're also, to a certain extent, conscious of public opinion. Uh, they're also conscious of precedent. Um, and regardless of where they stand, be they liberal or conservative, uh, they're fearful sometimes in the court being perceived to be uh, politicians in robes. So worth looking at. And although the, the Supreme Court is not directly part of uh, any examination on A21, it is it is worth bringing that into mind because it's a it plays such a key role as the ultimate arbiter of the constitutionality of decisions. There's a case coming through at the moment about free speech, about a girl who was not selected um, to be a cheerleader and then went on, on to a fairly abusive rant on social media. And the school uh, that she attends effectively uh, were wishing to sort of punish her. And the question arose, because she did that outside school time, she wasn't in uniform. Uh, She's taken a legal case uh, through the American Civil Liberties Union, actually, about protecting her First Amendment rights. 
and that particular case uh, is making its way all to the Supreme Court. The lower courts have actually ruled in her favour, uh, and it will be one of the first opportunities for the Supreme Court to rule uh, on the extent to which speech on the internet is subject to any controls or restraints, or whether the broad notion of freedom of speech under the First Amendment applies there. Uh, so if you actually look at her rant, it's pretty appalling. It involves, you know, middle finger and the F word on a regular basis. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, this is issues uh, could have set a wider precedent about um, what you can or cannot say in, in criticism and in terms of speech. Okay, so that's the end of that particular series of lectures. Hope you find those particularly useful. Hi folks, uh, this is a, another series of lectures. Uh, this time it's entitled The Westminster Model um, and the Civil Service. Now we maybe haven't emphasised enough the role of what you might describe as the permanent government, but this is a course given by Dr Patrick Diamond, appropriately enough from Queen Mary University of London. Queen Mary's college actually uh, my son is part of that, University of London, but he's studying medicine. But uh, Patrick Diamond is going to explore the parliamentary system of government, which is known, some people would call it the Westminster model. Do be careful when you're spelling Westminster. It's not Westminster, it's Minster, like a cathedral or church. Uh, and the focus is on the second half of the course on one of its central pillars, the permanent independent civil service. As you probably know, one of the things that Dominic Cummings was aiming to do, and indeed Johnson is aiming to do, is to you know, knock the, the, the traditional civil service about. Thatcher tried to do this in the, in the 1970s. She was greatly taken and, and uh, it was a bit of a parody and a, a satire of it. The, the TV series, Yes Minister and then Yes Prime Minister. The civil service is often seen as a kind of uh, block on what uh, particularly radical uh, or even arguably sort of reforming uh, governments want to do. It seems to find ways uh, to stop government doing things, something of an exaggeration. But it used to be described as actually one of the strongest features of the British political system uh, ever since the staff, uh, the North Coast Trevelyan reports, was the idea of an independent and uh, neutral civil service that was prepared to serve any government. There has been a growth, obviously, in the 20th century, certainly from the mid-60s onwards, in bringing in more and more outsiders, uh, either on a temporary basis or full-time basis, partly in to work with the civil service, but also sometimes seen as a buffer protecting ministers, uh, if you like, from uh, civil servants and their uh, no-can-do attitude compared to perhaps the, the can-do attitude of special advisors. Uh, we saw that also, if you remember, in the, the TV fiction uh, Roadkill with Hugh Laurie, where he was trying to make some reforms to the prison system. But the permanent secretary, the senior civil servant, who's not a political appointment as such, uh, was trying to find lots of reasons not to do it, uh, whereas the minister wanted to, to do it and was getting very frustrated with the, the, the civil service, with the department. So uh, Patrick Diamond's looking at that. And he's also looking at the whole issue of the arguments for and against what's called the Westminster model. More of that uh, in, the, in the talk. The third module or third lecture, he's going to look at it in terms of supporters and critics of the Westminster model. He's going to divide them into four camps. Um, and then in the fourth module, he's thinking about one of the central institutions of the Westminster model, that's the civil service, before turning uh, in the fifth and final module to consider the challenges and criticisms faced by the civil service, which I've just partly outlined there, their conservatism with a small c, their reluctance to change, uh, their we know best attitude, their lack of understanding of things like business, perhaps. Um, and I suspect this will also tie in indirectly with things like the 
Europe, uh, because the general view was that the establishment, if you like, the civil service was not terribly keen in some, some respects uh, to see uh, a, a more sovereign Britain. Uh, they didn't like Brexit. And some people feel that's because it would expose them to, to more, shall we say, criticism or expectations upon them delivering, whereas in the past they could always blame someone else. So uh, if you've ever heard of, yes, Prime Minister, uh, the Sir Humphreys of this world, the Bernards of this world, and the Jim Hacker, who was the, the main character played by the late great Paul Eddington, then uh, you should have a look out for that somewhere on YouTube. Yes, Minister or Yes, Prime Minister. I don't know if you'll get it, but uh, it was excellent. Very, very funny, uh, in my opinion. So uh, that, that's what he's looking at. And let's, uh, let's get on to Patrick Diamond and see what you think of this. So uh, it'll just run each of the, I should just give you the actual the timings, key characteristics, last eight minutes, 20 seconds, the arguments for and against the Westminster model, uh, 11 minutes, 17, the supporters and critics, which he divides into four different groups, 12 minutes and 15, then the actual rule of the civil service, quite short, nine minutes, 24, and challenges and changes to the civil service, another nine minutes, 42. So when you combine those all together, you're getting something in the region of, um, about 50 minutes or so of lecture so we'll we'll get that started now i'll start with the introduction which is only a matter of 30 or 40 seconds and probably repeats what i've just said i'm dr patrick diamond i'm senior lecturer in public policy and british politics at queen mary university of london in this talk we're going to look at two central features of the way that the british political system has been changing in recent times we're going to look at the westminster model as the core way in which british politics and the british political system have traditionally been understood and then we're going to move on to look at one of the key pillars of the westminster model which is the idea of a permanent neutral non-partisan civil service and again we're going to look at the way in which the role of the civil service has been changing in recent times in the first module we're going to look at the central institutional characteristics of the Westminster model. How does the Westminster model operate? What are its core principles? How's it evolved historically? How's it been understood? In the second section of the module, we're going to go on to look at some of the arguments which have been made both by supporters and critics of the Westminster model. What do those who say the Westminster model is the best way of governing Britain? What arguments do they use? How do they characterise the advantages, the benefits of the Westminster model as opposed to other political systems? And also what kinds of criticisms have evolved of the Westminster model in the last few decades? In the third section of the module, we then go on to look at some of the more fundamental criticisms, but also arguments which are made in favour of the Westminster model. We look on the side of criticisms at the way in which the Westminster model has been, under, has been attacked and undermined on the basis that many of the assumptions it holds are increasingly obsolete. The idea of power being held within the nation state at the level of the nation state is an idea which has been increasingly criticised in an era of globalisation and increasing transnational governance. But also the idea that power is held within a single set of institutions at the centre of the state has also been criticised by those who argue that political power is nowadays much more fluid, exercised by a much wider range of actors, in which government is much less likely to be the central authority. In the fourth section of the lecture of the session, we then go on to look at some of the ways in which we can apply these ideas to one of the central institutions within the Westminster model, which is the non-partisan neutral civil service. We look at how the civil service has changed over recent decades. We look at how the size of the civil service has changed. And we also look at the change in the structure and the demographic composition of the civil service. In the final section of this session, we look at 
some of the ways in which the tradition of the civil service in Britain has been challenged. The civil service has worked in ways that presume a very close uh, relationship between ministers and officials, but this relationship has begun to break down. And we'll look at some of the reasons why that's the case and the challenges that this has presented to the civil service. And we'll look at how some of these changes also flow from bigger changes which have occurred in British politics, which are to do with the unravelling, the unwinding of the Westminster model, which has been taking place certainly since the late 1990s. And we'll look at the implications of this for the future of the civil service across the UK. My name is Dr Patrick Diamond. I'm a lecturer in public policy and British politics at Queen Mary University of London. In this section, we're going to look at identifying key characteristics uh, and criteria of the Westminster model in British politics. One of the main ways in which British politics has been understood by political scientists and historians is by drawing on the concept of the Westminster model. And in this section, we're going to look at what the Westminster model means, how it's been defined in the literature, and how it's been understood. The term Westminster model is used in accounts of British politics in various ways. Uh, some authors refer to the Westminster model in terms of an account of British political history. Uh, they use the Westminster model to try to understand the origins of British politics, how the past of British politics shapes the present, how past political institutions influence the development of political institutions in the present day. A second understanding of the Westminster model is as a description of how British politics actually works in practice. How does the British political system really operate? Uh, who are the individuals and actors within the British political system who hold most power? Uh, how do they influence and exert their power within the political system? That's a second understanding uh, by which the Westminster model is used. A third understanding of the Westminster model in the literature is to understand the Westminster model as an ideal type of British politics. In other words, it's a depiction of how the system should work if the system is functioning effectively. If the British political system is operating as we would expect it to, it would conform to some of the key characteristics of the Westminster model. And a final way in which the Westminster model has been understood in the literature is in terms of a story which we tell ourselves about British politics, uh, which is often used to legitimate the existing system. Uh, we do it this way because this is the way that it's always been done. The Westminster model embodies the best traditions of how British politics works. If we conform to the traditions of the Westminster model, then we can expect uh, our political system to function efficiently and effectively. So the, the term Westminster model is used in various ways in the accounts of political scientists and historians. So what do we actually mean by the Westminster model? What are the core institutional characteristics of the Westminster model? How can it be defined? Well, there's a long list of core features of the Westminster model, and I'll just summarise them very briefly here. One of the most important attributes of the Westminster model is that it's centred on an unwritten constitution. The idea of the Westminster model is that the constitution is set by precedent rather than by a written legal constitution that we would see in comparable countries like Germany and the United States. In Britain, we have an unwritten constitution. The constitution develops organically it is set by precedent. Another very important feature of the Westminster model is the idea of a sovereign parliament. The centre of political power within the country, the centre of legislative authority lies with parliament. Parliament is at the centre of politics in Westminster. It's parliament whose authority is supreme. The Westminster model 
is based upon the fundamental assumption that the sovereignty of Parliament is um, sacrosanct. And this, of course, is very relevant also to other debates in contemporary times about Brexit, about the notion of reclaiming sovereignty from the European Union, uh, and so on. A third uh, fundamental feature of the Westminster model is the idea of a unitary state. The Westminster model emerged in an era when there was a unified Great Britain, a Britain comprised of four constituent nations, England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. And again, the Westminster model is based on the assumption of a unitary state. The four nations of the UK are ruled through Westminster. Authority may be devolved, as it has been since the late 1990s, to institutions in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland that take some decisions at the local level. But the fundamental principle is that it's Westminster which is still sovereign. And over issues of foreign policy, economic policy, defence and so on, it's still Westminster which has both supreme authority and also day-to-day decision-making powers over those issues. So a unitary state is another core feature of the Westminster model. The Westminster model also involves a constitutional monarchy. Britain, again, has the features of the constitutional monarchy in which the monarch plays a significant role in the day-to-day workings of politics and the constitution by exercising certain uh, prerogative powers. Another feature of the Westminster model, which has caused some controversy in recent times, has been the idea of Britain being ruled through what is called cabinet government rather than prime ministerial government. By cabinet government, we mean the idea that the country is ruled through a body, a cabinet comprised of around 22 ministers who each take collective responsibility for policy decisions. In a prime ministerial model, or indeed a presidential model of government, obviously the idea there is that there is an individual who is in overall charge who takes authority over key decisions. In the Westminster model system, with a cabinet at the heart of the system, the idea is that it's a group of ministers who rule together. They take collective responsibility. And in the phrase that's often used, the prime minister is first among equals. Yes, the prime minister is the leading minister, but they're only the leading minister insofar as they can command the confidence of the other ministers within the cabinet. As we've seen, the Westminster model is based on the idea of an unwritten constitution, and therefore the constitution operates through precedent. Uh, Rules are shaped by constitutional convention rather than by a higher legal authority, and therefore convention plays a very important role in the day-to-day operation of the Westminster model. One or two final points to define the core features of the Westminster model. The Westminster model is based on the principle that there is an independent judiciary. So the judiciary is appointed independently of the executive and has an independent constitutional authority. Two other important features of the Westminster model, which make the Westminster model what it is. One is that the electoral system that leads governments to be elected in Britain is based on the idea of what's called the first past the post electoral system. And this tends to mean that The governments which are elected are majority governments. Uh, They have a majority in the House of Commons. They're able to rule without having to rely on the support of other political parties. We call this a winner-takes-all system. And it tends to lead, at least historically, to 
reasonably stable governments with majorities who are able to rule for four to five years uh, without having to resort to making deals with other, with other parties or having to negotiate legislation. In other words, the Westminster model and the electoral system of winner-takes-all are based on a notion of strong government. A final uh, characteristic of the Westminster model, which is very relevant to this talk today, is that the Westminster system, the Whitehall model, operates through uh, a politically neutral permanent civil service. Uh, the Westminster model relies on ministers, politicians to take decisions, but the day-to-day -day workings of government, the day-to-day -day operations of the British state, happen through a civil service which is independent, which is politically neutral, which is non-partisan, which remains in place as governments change between elections, um, and which has the authority to carry out decisions on behalf of ministers. So a politically neutral permanent civil service is a core feature of the Westminster model. If we add all of these characteristics together, then we do see this reasonably coherent UK government Westminster model system, which is relatively unique in the world, but which has given Britain uh, this very unique way of governing itself uh, for the past three centuries. So in this section of the talk, we're going to look at the arguments for and against the Westminster model. What is the case for the Westminster model? What's the case against it? This question has been debated extensively by political scientists, by historians, and also by practicing politicians. There's been a lively debate over the last 40 to 50 years about whether or not the Westminster model serves the British political system as well as we might expect. Is the Westminster model the best way of governing Britain? Are there alternative models? Are there alternative ways by which our political system uh, might operate? And this debate has coincided to some extent with a broader debate about uh, whether Britain is a country which is in decline. In the 1960s and 1970s particularly, there was a very lively debate about whether the British economy in particular was going through a period of relative decline in comparison to its major international competitors. And one of the points that was made in that debate was whether the nature of the British political system, some of the deficiencies of the political system, contributed to that economic decline. And the Westminster model was often implicated by those who criticised the existing political system as being one of the reasons why the British political system and the economy were not functioning as well as they should have been. So the Westminster model isn't just a way of understanding British politics. It's also been a centre point of debate between different groupings who've taken different positions about how well uh, the British or how well Britain is governed. So in this section, we're going to look at both the case for the Westminster model and the case against it. To begin with the case for, what are the virtues of the Westminster model? Why is it seen to be a good way of governing the country? Why is the Westminster model see, still seen as the best system despite the criticisms that are made of it? Well, one argument is an argument about continuity. Uh, the argument that's made is that the Westminster model encapsulates the way in which Britain has been governed for many decades, indeed even many centuries. And it's this continuity that gives the British political system a sense of stability, uh, a sense of, over time, uh, a political system operating with clear traditions, clear conventions, clear understandings. It doesn't need a written constitution because Britain has a sense of continuity uh, by how it is governed. In addition to that, and a very closely related point, is that 
Britain has flexibility in the way its constitution and political system operates. Because we don't have a written constitution which is highly legalistic, uh, we can adapt and respond, uh, we can make our governing arrangements respond to changes in circumstances. When events happen, when unexpected events take place, when even constitutional crises occur, the British political system is able to adapt, it can evolve, it can respond to these crises in an organic way because it has the flexibility of not having a written constitution, of being able to uh, adapt and respond accordingly. Another virtue of the Westminster model, another argument for it, which is often made by its supporters, is that it has resulted in a reasonable degree of governing stability in the UK. Although in recent times, in British general elections, we have seen uh, none of the main parties gaining uh, a majority of seats in the House of Commons, it has been the case, certainly in the post-war period, that for the majority of the time, uh, majority governments have been elected. A single party has been able to command a majority in the House of Commons. This has enabled it to govern and provide a reasonable degree of stability. It's been able to put through its legislative programme without having to rely on the support of other parties. So stability and also strong government are also seen to be virtues of the Westminster model. The strength of government which comes from majority rule, the strength of government which comes from a single party with a prime minister deriving their support from them, provides strong government, which is seen as a positive contrast to other countries, for example, in Western Europe, which have plural electoral systems, which tends to lead to coalition governments, which can, at least in some countries, be much more unstable and contributes to a wider picture of political and institutional instability. Other virtues of the Westminster model the Westminster model provides a political system and a method of government which is very efficient. Decisions can be taken relatively quickly. Once legislation is passed in the House of Commons, the legislation can then very quickly be implemented. Measures can be put into practice very quickly. Governments can respond to the concerns of the public very efficiently on key issues. The Westminster model, the legislative approach that it foresees, the way that the House of Commons operates in accordance with the Westminster model, enables government to operate efficiently and effectively. Another virtue of the Westminster model is that accountability within the Westminster model is very, very clear. The Westminster model is based on a relatively simple premise, which is a premise of ministerial accountability. The decisions which British government takes, the consequences of those decisions, are ones for which ministers are responsible. And so in each of the relevant areas of government policy, according to the department uh, through which the minister is operating, the minister will take responsibility for all of the affairs of that department. All of the decisions which that department takes, uh, all of the decisions which it oversees, all of the policies which it implements, all of the resources which it's using, the accountable figure for the behaviour of that department is the minister. The minister is in charge. And beyond that, the minister is not just in charge, they're accountable for their decisions before the House of Commons. If they make a mistake, uh, if a problem occurs, if there is some act of incompetence, if there is indeed financial impropriety of some kind, the minister can be held to account on the floor of the House of Commons. And that gives the Westminster model, again, um, a clear sense of accountability, a clear sense of who to hold responsible for the decisions which get taken by uh, British government. This also gives the Westminster model a sense of legitimacy. Um, the argument is that the Westminster model has worked effectively because voters, citizens know who to hold to account. 
The system may in one sense be simplistic. It may be simplistic in foreseeing that ministers take responsibility for all decisions which the government takes. But that has the virtue of providing a very transparent account of how government works to citizens. If citizens feel that some mistake has been made, if they feel a decision has been taken wrongly, if they feel that they have been mistreated, there is a place to which they can go to seek redress. They can hold a minister to account. They can indeed also, through their member of parliament, uh, seek accountability, seek uh, redress for decisions which are taken, which have arguably caused uh, them problems or difficulties. So legitimacy the sense of legitimacy which comes from transparency and a system of accountability which is relatively straightforward and easy to understand would be regarded as one of the other core features of the Westminster model and one of the arguments which is often made in its favour. However, as I mentioned at the beginning of this section, there are, of course, also many critics of the Westminster model. Uh, there are those who would argue that the Westminster model has not served the country so well, that it has implicated Britain in a long-term process of economic and political decline, and therefore we need to rethink uh, how the Westminster system operates. So what are the core arguments which are made against the Westminster model? Well, one of the most important is the argument that the Westminster model is simply outdated. The Westminster model was a good model for governing when it was created and emerged several centuries ago, but in the circumstances of modern Britain, the Westminster model is not able to deal with the kinds of problems that emerge in a modern political system, a modern economy. Um, the notion of ministerial accountability is somewhat outdated. Uh, the idea that you can hold ministers accountable in such a straightforward way has become more and more problematic. The range of activities in which government is now engaged because of the reach of economic and social policy intervention means that the Westminster model understanding of how government works has just become more and more outdated and more and more unrealistic. So there's certainly a powerful argument to be made that the Westminster model no longer reflects the circumstances of contemporary Britain and what it means to govern in contemporary society. Uh, a relevant and uh, additional point which is made is that the Westminster model, underpinned by the British Constitution, um, is more and more arcane because the very idea of an unwritten constitution has become more and more problematic. An unwritten constitution may have the advantage that it can be adapted, it can evolve in accordance with events, it can be adapted organically and so on. Uh, but having an unwritten constitution uh, makes it very difficult for a government to operate in a transparent and efficient and effective way. Uh, without that legal ballast of having a clear set of constitutional powers which are articulated and set down in one place. This can often be a recipe for constitutional confusion. And in some recent debates about the power of the devolved institutions, debates which of course have arisen also about Brexit as well as other debates about the powers of ministers, the point is often made that these debates have become much harder to resolve because of the absence of a written constitution. Another argument which is made about the Westminster model uh, which is seen as a criticism, is that the Westminster model has promoted a form of politics in Britain which is out of touch. Uh, Westminster is very much seen as a place that is more and more uh, separated, indeed even isolated, from voters in the country. Uh, the phrase is sometimes used, the Westminster village, the idea that Westminster is a self-contained place where politicians and civil servants take decisions that are often very distant from the people that they affect. So there's a sense of the Westminster model also perpetuating a form of politics which is out of touch, which has led to what some have called a crisis of legitimacy, a sense that citizens are less and less 
enthusiastic about politics, which has manifested in other trends, like, for example, the declining turnout in British general elections, which has been a phenomenon since the uh, late 1990s. Other criticisms of the Westminster model that relate to this are that it's centralising, it perpetuates a form of government which Lord Hailsham called elective dictatorship, i.e. the idea that ministers can simply take decisions without really being held accountable, and that this has promoted a form of politics in Britain which is disengaged, which is sometimes secretive, which is not sufficiently accountable to citizens. And this is a set of very powerful criticisms which has led to calls not just for major reform of the Westminster model, but indeed even for overhauling the Westminster model completely and moving towards a very different kind of political and governing system. So in the previous section, we looked at the idea that the Westminster model has been both criticised by those who see the Westminster model as an ineffective and perhaps even unaccountable way of governing the UK, as opposed to those who argue that the Westminster model is still the best governing political system that they can envisage for Britain, and therefore that they believe that the Westminster model should be, in some senses, continued, sustained and underpinned as a way of governing Britain in the future. In this section, we're going to look at some of the arguments of both supporters and detractors of the Westminster model in some detail. And here I'm going to draw upon an article that was published in 2006 by Patrick Dunleavy, which distinguishes between four different types of arguments which are made in response to the debate about the Westminster model. One set of arguments is made by what we would call core supporters of the Westminster model, those who believe that it's still the best system. A second type of argument is made by what we call reformist critics. Dunleavy calls the reformist critics those who um, have problems with the Westminster model, don't necessarily want to completely scrap it, but want to put in place reforms which will make the model work more effectively. A third set of critics of the Westminster model outlined in the Dunleavy article are what he calls internationalist critics, those who believe that the very notion of the Westminster model is problematic because of the reliance it places on the idea of Britain being governed through a nation-state. Internationalist critics question whether that view of the, West, of the nation-state is still realistic and credible. And finally, there are a group of critics of the Westminster model. Dunleavy calls this group postmodern critics who argue that the Westminster model is based upon a fundamentally outdated way of thinking about how political power operates in modern societies and therefore they make a set of compelling criticisms of both how the Westminster model envisages the role of government but also how the role of government ought to change to keep pace with these kinds of changes. So let's turn immediately to the question of the core supporters of the Westminster model what arguments do they make? What do they believe? Why do they think the Westminster model should, in some sense, be continued? Well, the argument here would be that the Westminster model does still express very effectively how the political system actually works in practice. We can make all sorts of arguments about why the Westminster model has become more outdated, but the fundamental principles of the Westminster model, in particular the idea of a sovereign parliament and the idea of ministerial accountability with ministers taking decisions and being, a held, and being held to account for those decisions uh, before the House of Commons, still expresses still articulates the way that the British political system fundamentally operates. These supporters of the Westminster model would also argue that there are very strong normative reasons 
to support the Westminster model. There are very strong normative grounds on which it's possible to argue that the Westminster model is still the most effective way of governing the UK. One of the most important normative arguments is that the Westminster model leads to governing stability, as we saw in the previous section. It allows strong governments to come to power, which can take decisions in the national interest, which don't have to compromise and negotiate with other parties, which can take decisions on behalf of voters in an authoritative and efficient way. Um, in addition to that, it also leads to strong, what are often called responsible governments, governments which have the authority to take decisions, um, governments which have responsibility to be held account for their decisions, uh, governments which um, exercise power on behalf of voters and can be held to account for doing it. So there are very strong normative reasons why an argument is made in favour of the Westminster model. These core supporters of the Westminster model also argue that the critics of the Westminster model have put forward solutions, proposals for reform, which are themselves highly problematic. And perhaps one of the best examples of this is those who advocate reform of the electoral system. Supporters of the Westminster model argue that if we were to move to a proportional electoral system, which is more like the systems that we see in many countries in Western Europe, then this would perpetuate political and governing instability. It would prevent majority governments being elected. It would lead to horse trading between different political parties. It would make coalition government not just something that happens um, relatively rarely, as it has in the UK over the last 70 years, but something that was a continuous feature of our political life, and they would see this as a disadvantage. They would also argue that insofar as there are problems with the Westminster model, the core supporters of the Westminster model would argue the problems that have been created are not to do with the integral features of the Westminster model, but to do with reforms which politicians have introduced, which have made the model more and more incoherent. The sense that politicians have engaged in constitutional tinkering, that they have in introduced reforms which are in themselves incoherent, which don't add up, which introduce new anomalies into the way that the political system operates, which complicate how institutions operate. Yes, there is a problem with the Westminster model, but insofar as there is a problem, these core supporters argue, it's a problem which has been created by the temptation of politicians to try to tinker and reform the system. And the core supporters argue the best thing you can do with the Westminster model is leave it alone, allow it to function, allow it to adapt, allow it to emerge organically, don't try to introduce reforms which will create problems and anomalies and contradictions which then have to be resolved uh, further down uh, the road. However, um, while there are many eloquent supporters of the Westminster model, as we've already discussed, there are, of course, those who dispute whether the Westminster model is the best way of governing the UK. And we're going to look now at some of the arguments that those different critics make. Reformist critics are perhaps those who have the mildest criticisms of the Westminster model. They don't necessarily believe that the Westminster model is fundamentally mistaken. They don't necessarily believe that the whole, the way that the political system uh, works in Britain should be completely reformed and completely rewritten. But they do argue that there should be some significant changes to how the Westminster model and how the political system in Britain operates. They want to move away from the traditional form of the Westminster model and introduce changes that make the Westminster model more modern, more, more efficient, more accountable, more in tune with the kind of changes that have been taking place in British politics and society since the Second World War. These reformist critics therefore advocate a programme of changes. 
this program often involves changes that include electoral reform, particularly for the system of elections to the House of Commons. It involves a much greater emphasis on scrutinising the work of Parliament, getting away from the kind of secretive culture which often dominated Westminster politics. Uh, a much greater emphasis on pluralism in policy making, involving different interest groups in the policy process, involving different political parties in policy making, having a much greater emphasis on negotiation and pluralism in the policy making system. Other reforms which are often discussed within the context of this programme include decentralisation, giving more power to local government, giving more power to devolved authorities, allowing more power to be exercised outside Westminster. Uh, yes, there are still some decisions that are taken appropriately at the Westminster level, but there are many other decisions that could be taken much more easily at the level of regional or uh, local uh, government and so on. These reformist critics also say that perhaps the Westminster model or some form of it could operate more effectively if there was a written constitution. If there was a single guide, a single legal authority that set out how the constitution should operate, this would be a much more efficient and effective way of the British political system operating. So many of those who are reformist critics of the Westminster model argue that one of the most important changes we could make would not be simply a programme of incremental reforms in different areas, but also the introduction of a written constitution that would fundamentally change the way in which the British political system operated. So turning to the international or internationalist critics of the Westminster model, what do they argue that's different to both supporters and reformers critics of the model? The fundamental argument of the internationalist critics is that the Westminster model is based on a fundamental misconception, which is that societies in the modern world can still be run through governments operating at the level of the nation state. Obviously, one of the key assumptions which the internationalist critics make is that countries like Britain have been uh, fundamentally affected by the growth of the development of globalisation. Globalisation completely changes the way in which the UK needs to be governed because in creating a much more integrated economy, a much more integrated society, a much more integrated culture, it makes it much more difficult for governments at the national level to put in place effective policies because so many of the policy problems that they're dealing with are actually transnational in nature. Therefore, these internationalist critics argue there's no point in tinkering with the Westminster model. There's no point in trying to reform it at the edges. We have to move to a fundamentally different form of governance, which is based on recognising the transnational, the internationalist, the integrated way uh, in which the um, world now works. And, of course, one of the main expressions of that more internationalist approach, the approach that transcends the exercise of power at the level of the nation state, has been the importance attached to the European Union. The idea that many of the policy decisions which, gets, which have been taken in the past in Britain would be more effectively taken at the level of the European Union. Of course, in recent years, this has become a much more controversial debate because of the vote in 2016 for Britain to leave the European Union. But still, internationalist critics of the Westminster model would argue whether Britain votes to leave the EU or not, many of the decisions that we need to take are going to need to be taken at a transnational level above the level of the nation state. The final group of critics of the Westminster model are what we call the postmodern critics. Uh, these critics argue, again, rather like the internationalist critics, that the whole way in which the Westminster model operates is fundamentally misconceived. But rather than the direction of argument of the internationalist critics 
of arguing that the problem is to do with the increasingly obsolete nature of the nation state. These critics argue that we need to completely reconceive of how political power operates in modern societies. They argue that citizens are increasingly uh, disengaged from politics, but they also argue that it's increasingly difficult for politicians and for ministers to take decisions effectively in this new political environment. Um, power is now exercised in much more pluralist, amorphous policy networks. It's not concentrated in a single place. It's much more difficult for government to exercise authority and carry through its policies in this much more complex environment where policy operates and power operates in a very uh, different way. These critics would argue that uh, governing is not something which is done solely by political institutions or even by the state. It's an activity which is carried out throughout society in complex ways. This argument is often referred to as the governance argument. And the argument is that Britain has shifted from uh, a form of government based on the Westminster model to a form of governance where power, as I say, travels outside the established institutions and flows throughout society. This has many advantages, but it also makes it much more difficult for ministers to take decisions and to impose their authority on society and on the economy and so on. So in the previous section, we looked at some of the most uh, prominent arguments which are made both in favour of and against the Westminster model. We looked at four different groupings within the academic literature, core supporters of the Westminster model. We looked at reformist critics. We looked at internationalist critics. And we finished up by looking at what we call the postmodern critics, those whose arguments are similar to the arguments in the literature made by those who say that there's been a shift from a system of government to a system of governance. In other words, the idea that power is moving away from the state, from government, and is flowing into civil society. Power is being now wielded more often by international, transnational corporations, by civil society organisations, by actors who are outside government. And this, of course, makes it much more difficult for governments to get things done. It makes it much harder for government policies to be implemented. It makes it much more difficult for government to exercise authority. And for those postmodern critics of the Westminster model, they would argue that the idea of political authority, political legitimacy being centralised in one place, in one particular set of institutions, is a fundamentally erroneous outdated, misplaced assumption. We have instead to envisage a system of governing in which power is much more fluid, in, in which it exists on the, in many more sites, in which it's um, being exercised throughout many more institutions than would have been the case in the past. All of these arguments are interesting. There are merits, of course, to all of them. What I think has taken place over the last 20 or so years is certainly an adaptation of the Westminster model. The reformist critics, those who say a programme should be put in place to adapt and perhaps even to fundamentally change some of the ways in which the Westminster model operates, those arguments have obviously had a big influence in the way that British politics has evolved. The constitutional reforms which have been introduced since the Blair government came to power in 1997 have already begun to change how the Westminster model operates, the devolution of power, the emergence of new electoral systems in different parts of the UK, the introduction of freedom of information legislation, which changes the secretive way in which government has traditionally operated in Britain, and many other changes, reforms of the House of Lords, reforms to the judiciary, and so on, have all in different ways modified, altered, adapted how the Westminster model functions in practice. So big changes have already happened and may indeed happen in the future. What I want to do in the next section is look at 
the ways in which we can understand those changes by looking at the evolution of a key institution within the way that the British political system works, which is the civil service. At the beginning uh, of the lecture, we looked at the fundamental features of the Westminster model. And one of the most important features of the Westminster model is the idea of a non-partisan neutral civil service which operates on behalf of the government of the day, which is loyal to whoever is in power rather than to a particular political party, which works very closely and on behalf of ministers. What we're going to do in the following section is just look at some of the ways in which the civil service operates in Britain, how the role of the civil service has evolved, how the civil service has changed, and how it's sought to keep pace with some of the changes that we've already looked at in this lecture, uh, so far analysing the literature on the uh, Westminster model. So what is the role of the civil service in Britain? How has the role of the civil service traditionally been understood under the terms of the Westminster model and the established political system? Well, as we said, one of the most important features of the civil service is that it's neutral, non-partisan, it's permanent, it doesn't change as in the US system whenever there's an election. Civil servants, even at the most senior level, remain in place despite a transition of government. They're loyal to whoever are the elected ministers of the day. This is a key feature of the way that the Westminster model operates, and it's a fundamental feature of how the civil service has operated in Britain over the last two or three centuries. In addition to this, the civil service is motivated by a very powerful public service ethic. The civil service is not there to... Uh, fulfill certain partisan goals or aims. It's not there to service the needs of a particular political party. It is there to advance the public interest. And one of the most important, some would say proudest features of the civil service in Britain over the last few centuries has been its reputation for being non-corrupt and for very much acting according to the public interest, for serving the public interest, for acting in a way which is consistent with the public service ethic. Another fundamental feature of the role of the civil service is the idea of a very close relationship between civil servants and ministers. In the early 20th century, in 1918, a report was published, a report authored by a prominent figure of the time, Haldane, uh, who advocated what he called a symbiotic relationship between ministers and officials. The idea that there should be a close working relationship between civil servants and ministers. The idea that ministers and civil servants depended on one another. Ministers depended on civil servants because civil servants gave them advice, gave them guidance, gave them an understanding of how British government worked, gave them also uh, an understanding of how they could best um, articulate their position to the public of how they could win public trust and so on. Ministers relied on civil servants to do that. But civil servants also relied on ministers because ministers gave them legitimacy. Uh, ministers listened to their advice. Ministers gave the civil service its unique role. Only by listening to civil servants, only by focusing on what civil servants were doing, uh, did ministers give the civil service the unique position of authority which it has within the British political system. So the close relationship between civil servants and ministers is based on the idea that both have something to gain from this relationship. Both fundamentally are advantaged by this very close day-to-day -day working relationship which has been a core pillar of the way that the system operates. A related point to this is that civil servants have what we call a monopoly over policy making within the Westminster system of government. The policy-making system is driven fundamentally by the advice which civil servants give to ministers. 
Of course, ministers will listen to other sources of advice. They'll listen to experts. They might listen to think tanks. They may listen to independent research institutes. They may talk to academics. But fundamentally, the policy advice which they receive is policy advice which is produced and written by civil servants because of the monopoly that they hold over the system of policy advice. And finally, another core feature of the way that the civil service operates is the idea of speaking truth to power. Because the civil service is independent, because it has an independent authority, and because ministers rely on it, it is the role of the civil service to tell ministers candidly uh, what it really believes about a particular issue or, a way a partic or the way in which a particular decision is taken. If a civil servant thinks that a minister is about to make a major mistake, if they think that a policy that a minister is about to advocate could be uh, problematic in some way or could create problems, uh, either in terms of the policy itself or the implementation of it, then civil servants know that it's their duty to say so. It is their duty to speak truth to power. It is their duty to tell ministers how they see it. And this, again, is what Peter Hennessy calls a golden thread running through the British system of government, the golden thread being the willingness of civil servants to give honest, candid, truthful advice. And again, this is a core feature of how the civil service in Britain uh, has traditionally operated. The, the civil service in Britain is also changing. Uh, today, there are something like 430,000 civil servants who are currently employed in different parts of the system of government in Britain. Um, in the late 1970s, the numbers were closer to a million, so there's been a significant reduction in the size of the civil service as governments throughout the 1980s and 1990s have sought to reduce numbers to make the public sector uh, more efficient and so on. Other changes have been important. The civil service is still largely based in Whitehall and Westminster, but there's also been uh, a process in which civil servants have increasingly worked in agencies which are located outside Whitehall, some of them located outside London, so there's been a dispersion of uh, civil service capacity outside uh, the so-called Westminster Village. There have also been changes in the composition of the civil service. Uh, now, more than 40% of civil servants are women, which, although not 50-50, does represent something of a change since the late 1970s, both at the senior level but also at more junior levels of public administration, there has been a, a significant rebalancing in terms of the demographic of the civil service. So the, the way that the civil service is working, who works in the civil service, where the civil service is located, there have been uh, major changes uh, here over the last uh, 30 or 40 years, which has also had a big impact on the way in which the civil service um, in Britain uh, operates. So in the previous section, we concluded the section by looking at some of the key features of how the civil service operates in Britain as a central pillar of the Westminster model. And of course, the relationship that the civil service has, particularly with ministers, can be described in this way in terms of a set of traditions, characteristics, pillars of the system and how it's evolved over the last uh, few centuries. But in practice, the role of the civil service has been changing, and it's changed quite dramatically, certainly since the late 1970s and early 1980s. And in this section of the talk, we're going to look at some of the ways in which the civil service tradition in Britain has been challenged, how the civil service has responded, but also how the role of the civil service has changed as a consequence. So the first of the challenges to the civil service tradition is the challenge to the idea of a generalist civil service. Historically, the civil service was based on the idea that civil servants were not experts 
but they were what was called generalists. Uh, they were people who were highly trained and highly skilled at turning their attention to a very wide range of issues and providing authoritative guidance to ministers by using generalist techniques of expertise in terms of writing advice, writing speeches, writing submissions to ministers, using a, a, whole, a whole set of skills that didn't rely on expertise but relied on their ability to give uh, good advice and effective advice to ministers. Often what ministers were looking for from civil servants was the ability to give advice about how to get legislation through Parliament, about how to handle different pressure groups, about how to handle different stakeholders. And this was something that the civil service was very effective at doing. However, in the last few decades, um, the requirements, the pressures on ministers have changed so that increasingly they're looking for different things from civil servants. Um, in particular, um, the way in which governing the economy and society has become more complex since the Second World War, the way in which governments are intervening in different areas of economic and social life, means that ministers often require different forms of expertise which the civil service really struggles to provide. So the generalist tradition within the civil service is certainly one area where the civil service tradition has been significantly challenged um, in recent decades. A second area in which the civil service tradition has come under challenge is the idea of civil servants as being responsible for the delivery or the implementation of policy. Again, in the traditional understanding of how the civil service operates, the idea is that the civil service concentrates centrally on the notion of providing policy advice. The civil service is basically a collection of policy makers who are responsible for developing and formulating policy in conjunction with ministers. But again, in the last few decades, what ministers want from civil servants has changed. They no longer want civil servants who are predominantly concerned with policy making. There is much greater focus on civil servants playing a role in the implementation and delivery process. Ministers are now much, much more concerned with the importance of the delivery and implementation of their policies. And they want the civil service to play a role in doing this. But some of the problems which have emerged here are that Civil servants are very good at playing a policy-making role. They're very effective at working alongside ministers. They're very good at dealing with the intellectual challenges which policy-making often entails. But they're much less experienced at being involved in the minutiae of the day-to-day -day delivery and implementation of policy. They find this much more challenging. Often civil servants are used to working upwards. In other words, they're used to working in a hierarchical way um, directly to ministers. But in delivering policies, Obviously, the emphasis for civil servants is on working downwards and also on working with a much broader range of institutions across the public sector. Again, this is something which civil servants don't necessarily have much experience of and responding to the challenge of delivery since the late 1970s and early 1980s has been something which the civil service in Britain has really tried to deal with but has often struggled. A third area of challenge to the civil service tradition is the challenge to this idea of loyalty between civil servants and ministers. As we saw, one of the fundamental features of how the civil service operated was the idea of loyalty. Ministers were loyal to civil servants, civil servants were loyal to ministers. This is what made the system operate as it did. But there have been some real challenges to this uh, system of what's called serial monogamy, the idea of a monogamous relationship between civil servants and ministers, where they both rely on one another. 
Uh, ministers have, of course, brought their own people into government, special advisers, political advisers, partisan advisers who have, to some extent, provided an alternative channel of advice to the civil service, have at times uh, tried to sideline the civil service, have created many conflicts with the civil service, which has made civil servants increasingly nervous um, about the closeness of their relationship with ministers. Civil servants have also, it must be said, to some extent been moving away from ministers in some situations. Some civil servants have become whistleblowers who have objected to decisions that ministers have taken and they've gone public with their views. We can see from the growth of leaking in the last 20 or 30 years how civil servants have sometimes tried to raise objections to the decisions that ministers have taken. All of these events have served to weaken the traditional bond, the very close tie between ministers and civil servants, which makes this tradition of loyalty perhaps much less tenable, much less sustainable than it was certainly 30 or 40 uh, years ago. This links to another challenge, which is a challenge to the tradition of the civil service as providing both responsibility and accountability. Uh, the idea was that um, civil servants would provide advice to ministers confidentially. They would give their views anonymously, away from the public gaze, away from any kind of media reporting or media uh, inf giving information to the media about, about their views. Um, but of course, increasingly, civil servants have engaged in more open conflict with ministers. Um, there has been more open disagreement. Um, but in addition to this, civil servants have also become more accountable for their decisions. The traditional idea was that the civil service exercised accountability through ministers. Decisions that were taken by civil servants were ones for which ministers were held accountable before the House of Commons. Again, in the last 20 or 30 years, partly because civil servants have been taking more decisions over delivery, civil servants have themselves become responsible for taking major decisions, often decisions which may relate to financial decisions, decisions about procurement or commissioning of big government programmes. These may be decisions which are taken actually by civil servants rather than by ministers. And there's been increasing pressure um, on the civil service to be held directly accountable. Some members of parliament have argued that civil servants should have to hold, should have to um, be accountable for their decisions before the House of Commons directly in a way which is the case much more frequently in a political system like the United States. So again, in terms of the tradition of responsibility and accountability, which has been the underpinning of the civil service historically, this tradition has really begun to um, weaken. All of this is uh, a way of saying that the civil service in Britain has changed and is changing. The way in which governments work with the civil service has also changed quite significantly. Um, the old tradition, the idea of this close relationship between ministers and civil servants has really begun to break down. Ministers and governments are now looking to many more places for policy advice and direction. The old monopoly of the civil service over policy advice has really begun to break down. Uh, ministers have, have turned to think tanks, they've turned to special advisors, they've turned to independent research institutes and sources of expertise. They no longer look to the civil service only as, uh, as the uh, primary source of policy advice. And insofar as they do want something from the civil service, what ministers want is for civil servants to really be engaged in the delivery process. But as we've seen in this section, implementation and delivery of public policy is not necessarily something which civil servants are particularly effective at or particularly well trained to do.
So this gives a flavour of some of the tensions around the civil service. And I think it indicates that although some people might see the civil service as a relatively uh, dry and not particularly important or fundamental debate within British politics, the way that British politics has changed over recent decades, if we go back to the material that we discussed on the Westminster model, the changes that have been taking place within the civil service are an indication of the changes that have been taking place more widely across the way that the British state functions. Effectively, we've moved from some of the very simple accountability relationships which are envisaged by the Westminster model in terms of who exercises responsibility and accountability within our political system to a much more fluid, complex set of relationships where it's not necessarily clear within our political system who's accountable and who should be held responsible. And of course, this has contributed to many of the debates about a decline of legitimacy, a growing concern among citizens and voters, that it's difficult today to know who to hold account for political decisions. And the debate about the civil service, I think, crystallises and encapsulates uh, many of those debates about where the British political system has got to and where it's likely to go to in the future. So that completes uh, that series of lectures by Patrick Diamond. Now, I have to say not a huge amount of that is going to feed in necessarily to an AS2, but I think it gives you a, a broader understanding of what he said there at the end, the British state. We tend to look at things like Parliament or 10 Downing Street, government departments, political parties. Uh, but you've got to broaden this into sort of the state as a whole, the civil service. You could argue within that agencies effectively like the National Health Service, the police, the military, the courts all part of the state and how it functions and how indeed those functions have changed and who has responsibility for them. Uh, how some of them, because of things like devolution, for instance, we now in, in many ways look at aspects of delivery, uh, not at a, a kind of a central state level, a unitary level, but a devolved level. Obviously, some of these decisions, uh, which were formerly influenced by what was happening in Brussels, those have if not entirely been totally severed, certainly they're, they've now detached and we're, we're moving into a new era of a, yes, a standalone British state, but one which internally uh, is under a lot of pressure, significant divisions, even the divisions, for instance, over for COVID between uh, local government, uh, between the new mayors, for instance, Andy Burnham, in Manchester versus, say, the central state in, in, in Westminster. There's this general view that perhaps uh, British politics has been too London-centric. This is regardless of whether it's uh, Labour in power or Conservatives in power. Uh, it's been very much weighted towards the south of England. Um, there are strains and stresses, possibly because Britain is essentially quite an unequal society. It's also a society um, where, not surprisingly, the, one of the big raft bits of legislation coming through, uh, the Australian point system over migration, means to say that there has been a, a, a challenge to and, and, and indeed a, a stresses within a society which is much more multicultural. Uh, and that has never been fully resolved. So hopefully uh, you find some of that useful and certainly worth a listen to to give you a, a better picture, more detailed picture uh, of uh, what's happening within, within Britain and uh, from an academic who clearly has a, got a degree of expertise in things like public policy. Uh, it's the kind of area where if you go to university to study politics, you may find yourself, like any, any other subject, uh, going into areas in much more detail and maybe specialising on aspects of policy, policy implementation. Because after all, I mean, the, the key thing that the state does, well or badly, or other bodies do well or badly, is deliver things like healthcare, uh, social welfare policies, education, uh, policing. 
um, managing borders, uh, dealing with culture, trade, whatever. So you think about it that all politics, in a sense, is fundamental to that. Um, but it's 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 more complex, and and certainly it's only when you get down into the details. They used to say the devil is in the detail, and the salvation is in the small print. That you get a fuller understanding and appreciation, not just how complex society is, but also how complex the state is, and and the role of politics within that. Remember, politics fundamentally is about power, and a bit like the idea in physics that physics is essentially about. Um, the, the fact that uh, energy cannot be destroyed or going to be changed well politics effectively is about the notion that, that power can shift and change can be struggled for be conflicted over can be contested can be shared um, but nevertheless it can't as such be destroyed it will always move um, so there you go Patrick Diamond uh, Westminster Model and Civil Service that completes that piece